Hello, and welcome to the first 411 Powered by Age podcast. We are a group of seniors living in Vancouver, BC, and we all belong to the 411 Senior Center. We are just about the most diverse bunch of people you can imagine, which is just fabulous. Because that's exactly what a podcast for seniors should be. Coming up in our first podcast, we'll be talking about the rich history of 411, and you'll hear some storytelling. Coming up first, though, I'll be talking to our 411 director, Leslie Riemann, about how the 411 Powered by Age podcast was created. It's a pleasure to introduce Leslie Riemann, our executive director at 411. Leslie, I hear you're quite an innovator. Can you tell me what your latest innovation is about? I, I, under, I understand it's to present a pilot proj- podcast about 411. Can you tell me about it? Sure. So uh, the latest area that we're looking at is the area of aging and technology. So uh, the podcast has been an opportunity that has arisen under um, my exploration of possible activities for us at 411 around technology. How did this all come about? Yeah, well, uh, lots of uh, people that came together in the right way. But I guess the backstory is when I applied for the uh, position at 411 and I was doing a lot of research, I'd come out and worked for 20 years in community services um, in low-income communities. And uh, so I had a, a good, exp- uh, broad experience in nonprofit sector, but I didn't have a lot of kind of conscientious work um, with, with seniors in particular. Okay. So before I applied for the job, of course, I wanted to start finding out about what we call the sector, uh, the senior sector. And so that started me just researching what was new, uh, what was happening in senior center, trying to match it with what I experienced with my family um, and my parents and my grandparents and just started to try to create, um, I suspect, I suppose, from some form of uh, vision of aging from today forward. So um, I'm the next generation of seniors, so I have a personal kind of interest in how uh, technology is going to play a role in my aging process. I was looking at um, what was happening in academia uh, with researchers. There's a ton of work with industry and research on uh, aging in place using technology. Some of the stuff seemed out of reach for the people that I know, and certainly the seniors at 411. And the more I kind of looked into it, the more questions, honestly, um, John, that I had. So uh, the process created this uh, opportunity for to learn, for me personally to learn, and for us as a group to learn together. Mm-hmm. So I, how, what about this podcast? I mean, <laughs> the story of the podcast. So yeah. I had the bigger, I had the kind of the big questions. I get, I don't, the, ba- I get the background, yeah. and, but I'm so anxious to get to this podcast because this is all new territory for me. Right. So when I was looking at technology and aging, it was very medical. It's very medical device uh, what's happening um, out there in research and industry. So um, I, I was just thinking about how do you introduce these things to any of us who um, may not be using technology um, uh, frequently in our lives right now or interacting with it, how it, what's that expectation when you age okay. that all of a sudden you're going to have a robot at home or some devices to help you stay at home? And I just couldn't get my head around that gap between 
who's interfacing with technology and how we're using it today, especially from a senior's context, and how we were going to get there to this other place. And so that just started me uh, having conversations with everybody I could bump into who was willing to talk to me on, on this topic. How did you find these people? Well, the podcast, to your question, started over a storage room, frankly. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, I got an email from our property manager. So we're in a building of eight, sto- uh, eight floors here. There's a uh, 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 edu- uh, student groups and classes going on, educational uh, companies that are in, in this building, um, a, b- a bunch of different unique things happening in the uh, 333 terminal here. So um, I got an email from the property management uh, manager asking me if I would have a conversation with like, some guys on the second floor. Um, they were interested in using our storage room or something to do with our storage room. Okay. And that's how this started. So the funny part of the story was my first reaction. I must have been having a bad day. I didn't react positively to it. I thought it was just an annoyance. Um, so the 24-hour rule, you don't respond to anything. I don't respond to anything until I get some time to think about it. Um, and then the next day, I contacted the guys. And the guys are Luke and Joel and pod streamers. Um, and they were looking to store some things. So uh, we have a storage room that I didn't know was right beside their new... Um, emerging business here on the second floor, which are band rooms and recording pods. Um, and that kind of started the synergy between I'll do you a favor and you can do me a favor. So I guess another part of it was uh, some of the members when I first arrived had talked was talking about the radio station that they used to have at 411 Dunsmere. Oh yeah, I remember. Yeah. And they were encouraging me to start a new radio pro- program. And my first reaction, like, how the heck do you do, where do I start? <laughs> so, right. I, so a lot of my job when you're orientating for a new job is just to start taking information in. What are the visions? What are people thinking about? What are people telling me that they want? Um, and the radio show, um, coupled with how are we going to communicate as an organization? Because I think this is the other piece around the digital divide, John, is we have to run two concurrent systems at 411. About half our membership is online, so we can email them uh, communication, sure. or they're using social media. And about a half our membership are not online at all, and so they require uh, information through print. So me examining how do we how do we communicate with our members? How do we make sure people get equal amounts of information for us? You know, then my meeting with Joel and the podcast and my group telling me before about the radio show. And it just kind of started. That's where the I guess when you talk about innovation or creation, uh, creative energy or synergy, that's it's really been a bunch of us bouncing ideas off of us. And then the collaboration between uh, pod streamers, Joel, Luke um, and us. The next part is, well, what do you do a podcast about? <laughs> so that, the yeah, content. And I remember right. our first organizing meeting. That was a big, what are we going to do? What is what is a podcast? Most of the people, uh, the seniors participating, had not listened to a podcast before. They weren't aware what podcasts were. Same goes with my staff. So we were all got together on this learning. And at the same time, we had Nick working with us. And Nick is, a, I would call her, a creative director for 411. You know, she does our creative writing classes. Oh, yes, for sure. Yeah, she's done a comedy workshop. She's done just, just a, a great talent. And so 
I didn't have to worry about what the content would be because it was already happening all around me. And it was just exciting to think if we could find a new way to interface with technology, which is where this whole thing started, um, and a new way to communicate what happens at 411. And then I think the third piece, which is kind of arising through this, is kind of the legacy. So when you write story, when you storytell, or we do these activities at 401, how do we capture that? So we can listen to it in the future and as we go on. So, so much of our activities just kind of get lost into the mist. And I thought that what was happening around me uh, required that we capture it. I think it um, uh, destigmatizes aging. Um, I think it puts a new spin on, on what it is to be a senior. Uh, goes into another agenda of mine is to, uh, to mm-hmm. confront ageism and to redefine publicly what it means to be a senior citizen in our society. And so all of these things came up around the storage room. Oh, I see. Well, obviously you're very passionate about this project and uh, I look forward to hearing it and learning more about 411. Me Thank- too. Thanks for coming. Thanks, John. 411 Senior Center gives seniors voice and offer access to information, activities, and sustainable services that enhance the quality of their lives, help them achieve stability and independence. 411 Community, where older adults are able to access appropriate resources and services when and where they are needed. The center expands the reach through collaboration and partnership with like-minded organizations. Today, we thank Podstream for making this podcast on 411 Senior Center History possible. This is Ivy Liang. I'm a volunteer and member of 411 Senior Center. Sitting with me today, we have Stuart Alcock, the past president of 411 Senior Center, before retiring, Stuart worked as a social worker, a manager of legal services, and constituency assistant. He's also a member of the Advisory Council to Seniors Advocate, and he's on the steering committee of Corrine's Quest. He volunteers at Ballet BC. Hi, Stuart. Hi, Ivy. Now, the 411 Senior Center have a rich history and quite the story. How did you get involved with 411 Senior Center? My original involvement was when um, someone who had been on the board was retiring and she asked me if I might be interested in serving on the board. Um, And so I came and I met the executive director and uh, then the nominations committee and ended up on the board. Uh, That was in 2013, I had known about 411 for a good many years, uh, and in fact had referred people to 411 over the years. So I was familiar with its programming and and uh, and the long history of the organization. Hmm. Now, now, how did 411 Senior Center get its name? <clears throat> It's an interesting story because um, the property at 411 Dunsmuir Street, downtown Vancouver, uh, was originally built in 1911. 
and it was the Vancouver Labour Temple. Um, so it was used by union organizations. And um, I think it probably served those organizations for about 80 years. And somewhere in there, the, um, the provincial government ended up owning the building. So in the early years of the Dave Barrett NDP government in the 90s, um, Gloria Levy, who um, has been long associated with gerontology and seniors' organizations and so on, Gloria was married to Norm Levy, who was a minister in that government. And I gather from her that she was the one who suggested to her husband that 411 Dunsmuir Street be uh, not given, um, that seniors' organizations be invited to stay there. Mm -hmm. um, so it became in the early days, a place where a number of organizations got together as seniors' organizations. In 1970, so, sorry, I, I think I misspoke. This was in 1972 or 73. In 1977, the decision was made to actually form a society, so it became the 411 Seniors Center Society. And so um, at the end of 2017, we had a celebration for 40 years of the Seniors Center Society. So that's how it got its name. Wow. That's quite an accomplishment over mm -hmm. 40 years the society well, and more than 40 yes. years of activity, but 40 years since incorporation. Yes. And where, where did the money come from to buy the Four Women Dunsmuir building from the provincial government? Well, what happened was that the provincial government ended up being the owner of the building, but allowed the seniors' organizations and the center to exist there. Mm. In, I believe it was 2008 the government of the day decided to give the building to the society, um, which was wonderful, except that not long afterwards, now that we owned the building, it was discovered that there was a problem with water coming into the building and the society did not have the capital to be able to fix the problem. Uh, and I under, as I understand it, um, there were lots of debates about what to do and what not to do and, and so on and so forth. And ultimately, the board decided to sell the building. Uh, it has been bought, it has been renovated, and exist to this day downtown, um, but we're no longer there. Mm -hmm. um, the board made a, an interesting decision, which was that the proceeds from the sale 
should be retained to build another home for the society. So that's been a theme throughout my involvement on the board, uh, you know, trying to figure out how best to do that and plan for it. Mm-hmm. So we, we own the asset and we also own the problem of the building. Yes, exactly. <laughs> So describe to me uh, how how the people, the the members, the staff, and volunteer, and the board reacted to the change, the transition. I think I, as I understand it, because I wasn't involved at the time, I believed that there was a lot of disagreement about what was the best thing to do. Um. And the result of that is that um, some staff left, uh, some board members left, uh, some members left, um, and others stayed on uh, and remained involved. Uh, I think particularly of Elsie um, Dean, who stepped down from the board just last year. Elsie stayed involved. Um, I, and in talking to people over the years, I understand that some members really didn't understand what was going on. They felt that they were not being communicated with adequately. Uh, so they, they didn't understand the business about there being a problem with the building shell. Uh, so some of the decisions were not well understood, I think. Um, but that's now well in the past. Uh, we're almost, well, we're nine years on uh, from that, from the sale, and then the relocation um, to rented facilities. Um, and now, of course, we're looking forward to a new facility. Mm-hmm. I'm as a member. I'm always grateful with all the programs that are and services that are um, provided by the Four Women Center. Mm-hmm. And w- what are the positive things do you remember about the Senior Center? Well, there are there are two programs that stand out uh, for me um, because they're so important to people. One of them is the annual income tax clinic, uh, which is operated by volunteers who t- prepare tax returns for people. And I understand that this year uh, we're looking at something like 1,900 people receiving help to file their taxes. And these are low-income people. Uh, many of them with English as a second language or other challenges in relation to just simply filling out forms and sending them to the tax department. Um, The second program, which is year-round, also serves about 18 or 1900 people a year, and that's the information and referral program, where People come in with whatever's worrying them and seek advice uh, on 
how to solve whatever the problem is. Um, and those are no barrier. You know, you can come in, you will get whatever assistance we know how to, to offer. There are some problems with that, of course, in, in, in Vancouver with increasing homelessness. We're seeing people who are either homeless or uh, facing eviction. Um, and, of course, we're not a housing agency, so we don't have ready answers for uh, some of the problems. That said, then there are all these exciting programs um, that underscore something for me, uh, which is that only about 6% of seniors live in residential care programs. So oh, well over 90% of us stay active in the community. You know, so I look at the seniors' dragon boat. Uh, even this, the, this new venture of doing podcasts. Um, there's a book club. There's a ukulele club. There's all sorts of activities, including trips out to places like the art gallery or the symphony rehearsal, those sorts of things, that keep seniors engaged both with the wider world, but with one another. So there are friendships created. Um, and, you know, we hear lots and lots of stuff about seniors being isolated and so on and so forth. Well, the Senior Center is one of the answers to that problem. So I'm, I'm very excited about both the programs. And then there's another thing, which is 411 has a long history of speaking out about issues that affect seniors. So uh, last year we did a brief to the Provincial uh, Poverty Reduction Program, talking about seniors and poverty and what might help. Uh, we've done a similar th submission to the federal government. Uh, those sorts of things which, you know, advocate for more programs uh, and, more, and better policies uh, on issues that uh, impact seniors. We've supported the idea of a universal pharmacare program. Um, because as seniors we often are using a lot more medications than we did when we were younger. So there are issues out there that need to be addressed. Yes, I'm excited to hear all that. We already have uh, lots of programs going on. I'm extremely excited about the Dragon Boat. Yes. Seniors at the um, Dragon Boat races. Yeah. And my experience of the center is always very friendly, very... Uh, generous and people are really excited to be there. Oh, that's one of the joys of of stepping into this space is is there are some just lovely people uh, doing all sorts of interesting things in their lives, but being here as well and supporting one another. Yes, it, I love that. In 
and what what are you have you enjoyed being involved the most in the community your your own um, experience of is, is there programs that you like? Uh, well, I've been involved uh, in the uh, occasional uh, programs which are um, focused on people's travels. So you know, people bring in their photographs and talk about the trips they've been on. So to Italy or India or, or wherever. So that that's been interesting because I like to travel. Um, I have been personally very proud of the fact that my volunteer time with the ballet has resulted in us getting uh, tickets to attend the dress rehearsals. And so we've got members going to see contemporary dance in the Queen Elizabeth Theatre and many of them are people who would never have seen dance before or could not afford a ticket to a performance. So again, I mean, it's an issue of trying to enrich people's experiences. Uh, and I, I think 411 does that really well. Um, and I, I, I just realized that um, we're now, I think, about to have the second talk on world politics. Uh, you know, and people show up to, to participate in this range of activity. Uh, and then, of course, there's yoga and all sorts of other things that I keep forgetting about. Yes, I, I was at one of the World Affair um, in Middle East right. event. That that was incredible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, and some of the joy of this is we get people volunteering to lead these programs. You know, occasionally we pay people honorariums and so on and so forth, but people are interested in advancing their interests to other people. Oh, yes. I, I find we, we all want to contribute. Mm -hmm. And everybody has something to contribute. Yes. And yes. and we really appreciate all the service and your commitment to the 411 Senior Center. And um, thank you so much for taking part in this interview, Stuart. I, I want to just add one thing, and that is... You know, my primary involvement has been as a board member. The other board members themselves are a joy to work with. A diverse group of people, um, but all very committed to the interests of older people. Um, I, I, that has been a great pleasure for me. Thank you, and and we will invite members to to participate on the board as well. Yes, yes, it's that's important. Yes, that's important. It, it would be it would be very interesting and inspiring to work with the board executive. Yeah, 
Yes. Well, thank you again for taking part of this interview and your involvement in the 411 Senior Center. My pleasure. Thank, thank you, Stuart. The 411 Thrift Shop originated at the center's original location at 411 Dunsmuir Street. The thrift shop had great exposure as it was right at street level. I remember visiting the shop many times whenever I was in the downtown Hudson's Bay area. It was a great place to buy vintage clothing. The current 411 thrift shop is on the seventh floor at 333 Terminal Avenue, near the main Main Street Science World Skytrain station. Today we are talking with Betty Porteous about her involvement in the 411 thrift shop. Welcome and thank you, Betty, for taking the time to talk to us. How did you get involved in the 411 thrift shop? Well, it started out in the gift shop because there were three shops, bookshop, the gift shop, and the thrift shop, which was clothing. And um, so that was where we started. And then maybe a year after I started, my friend Amal came, and we've been on a Friday ever since. And then when we moved to this uh, location, we only had one shop and it sells everything. Wow. How many years ago was that? Uh, about 2001, 2002. Wow. Uh-huh. And what do you do at the thrift shop? We boss everybody around. <laughs> we sell lots. We love to sell. We, we're money daft. We just, you know, and we bring stuff every week because where we live, there's free, free shelves, three places, and, uh, and our neighbors know that we... We volunteer, so sometimes they leave stuff there or at the oh. door. Oh, very nice. And um, yeah, we really like it. How many other volunteers are there at the thrift shop? Um, well, there's part-timers, uh, Floor, and, um, and Amal. Well, Amal and I are both the same. We, we're there all the time. Uh, and there's Dorothy. Uh, it's about it, I think, because um, it's kind of um, open door during the week, and then we come on a Friday. Mm-hmm. But when we go to the news place in uh, on Fraser, there will be volunteers every day, uh, oh, just fantastic. like just like the old four eleven. Right, that's great. There were every day. Where do your donations come from? I'm Al and I bring, as I said, from our but. Uh, Monica receives lots and lots of uh, donations from other members that pop in. And what types of donations are accepted here? Clothing is a good one, except we don't have too much for men because we we have less men than we have. I mean, let's face it, the members are mostly women. And knickknacks and anything that's handy, everything has to be clean and everything is priced. Because I hate going somewhere and you, you have to ask how much something is. We price everything at very low prices. From your experience, what sells well? Books, books are good uh, and clothing. And um, let's see, shoes, um, household goods. We don't take electronics because sometimes they don't work. Mm -hmm. And then we have to dispose of them. We can't do that. What's the funniest or most interesting thing you've had donated? Oh, heavens. Oh, a wig. 
A wig. <laughs> a wig. <laughs> we didn't know what to do with it. <laughs> what we, did you do with it? Well, we stuck it on the, the heads, you know, oh, okay. and uh, it disappeared. I don't know what happened to it. Maybe somebody chucked it. <laughs> What's the most rewarding thing about working at the 411 thrift shop? Oh, just the company. It's great company. There's nobody I would wouldn't want to come. Yeah. We all know each other, like each other. We're going bowling on uh, the volunteer day. That's our treat. And uh, we love the bowling. Of course, South Granville always beat us for some reason. I think we beat them once away at the beginning. But uh, they won't be there because it's for, only for the volunteers. And there's going to be a lot of volunteers. Yep. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Oh, please come and visit. Uh, support us. Um, there's nothing like uh, friends. The final part of our podcast today is the chance to hear some true stories. At the Senior Centre, we have had the chance to take some wonderful classes, including storytelling. I think you're going to enjoy these true tales. Sharing stories today will be Taylor Cole with her story, The Blizzard of 49, and Naomi Spry with her story about her grandma, Japanese Brides for Sale. This is a story I've written about my grandmother, um, my father's mother, uh, who was born in Japan and came here in 1917. Uh, the story is Japanese Brides for Sale. Hey, Tezo, when are you going to get married? You know there are brides for sale in Japan. My grandfather is getting ribbed yet again by some of his Japanese-Canadian coal mining buddies. It's 1917 in Cumberland, B.C. Canadian immigration policies have eased a bit, Japanese men here are finally permitted to send for their wives and families back in Japan. Since Tezo is single, he decides to write to his family back in Kumamoto. Perhaps there's a suitable Japanese bride for sale for him. His parents discover that the Matsunaga family has a young single daughter named Matsue, my grandma. Letters of introduction and black and white photos are exchanged, and my grandfather and grandma are married by proxy. My grandfather sends over $50 to her family, which helps pay for her one-way boat trip ticket from Yokohama to Vancouver. My grandma is barely 17 when she immigrates here. She looks young for her age, very slight and petite. She's one of maybe 300 women now known as picture brides on that freighter, the Nippon Maru. Picture brides was the term for women being married off to single men here in Canada with just the exchange of a photograph and some money. My grandma arrives at Ballantyne Pier here at the foot of Dunleavy Street. All she has with her is a well-weathered leather suitcase and this black and white photograph of her husband, looking handsome yet stern in his dark suit and tie. She's wearing a blue wool suit she had made by the neighborhood tailor. Her family hears how cold it is in Canada, so for a going-away gift, her parents buy her a big, heavy, black bear fur coat that she now wears with much sadness. She understands that she will probably never see her family again. She holds on to this picture and searches for her husband for three whole days on that pier. When she finally lays eyes on him, she's shocked. 
You don't look at all like your picture. You're so much older. Yes, in fact, my grandfather is over 40. The photograph my grandma has gripped in her hands was taken when my grandfather was in his early 20s. Her 17-year-old heart sinks, but she is a devout Buddhist, so she will carry on as the wife of this 42-year-old stranger in this foreign land. And she has 13 children by him. She probably would have more kids except that my grandfather dies of a heart attack at the age of 56. So now she's a 31-year-old single mother with 13 kids and no visible means of supporting her family. She opens up her modest home and sets up a barbershop in her kitchen. At least she knows how to cut hair. She has 13 heads to practice on. She says, five cents for a haircut, as she offers a free cup of green tea. The Chinese barber in nearby Chinatown and the Italian barber in Little Italy both charge six cents, but no cup of tea. The simple offer of a cup of hot green tea distinguishes her from the competition. And green tea is cheap. Even though her English is spotty, she can say, sit, sit, like ocha, green tea in Japanese. She becomes the local town barber, and her kitchen becomes the social hub of the community, like our neighborhood coffee shop is today. To help supplement her income, she takes her children, including my father, into the nearby woods to forage for roots, leaves, and flowers. She then brews it all together for days and makes root beer and sells it by the gallon. My grandma is a very clever, astute young woman who raises 13 children almost single-handedly. And as a devout Buddhist, she carries on and survives. The outbreak of World War II and ensuing removal of her entire family from her home in Cumberland to Vancouver. The death of her 11-year-old daughter from TB in the stables at Hastings Park. The subsequent displacement of her entire family to an internment camp called Lemon Creek in the B.C. interior. The unwitting loss of her home and possessions back in Cumberland. The repatriation of her and all her Canadian-born children to Japan. My grandma returned to Vancouver in 1956 with her oldest son and started her new life as a grandmother. As a Buddhist, she always saw the goodness in life and in death. She never spoke ill of any of her misfortunes. We only learned her stories when she died. We found her diary where she had written in Japanese all about her struggles here and her fears of not being a good wife and mother. She wrote about how her friend had no breast milk for her newborn son, so Grandma fed him with her own breast milk. They were lifelong friends after that. She wrote about how difficult it was to learn English. She told me later that her best English teacher was Mr. Rogerson from television. She would take the bus every day to wherever she wanted to go, but she would always have a brightly polished orange for the driver. Sometimes she would tote 10 pounds of shiny oranges because she was taking a few buses that day, and each of those bus drivers deserved an orange. My grandma has passed now. We buried her in her black bear fur coat that she had kept all those years. It's the winter of 49. I'm 13. It's January, the coldest month of the year, the year of the big blizzard. The temperature is dipping well below freezing. 
But Saturday morning is clear and cold, and my mom and dad are taking advantage of the calm. They decide to take our two older brothers and head for town 12 miles east on the Jasper Highway in order to stock up on staples like flour, sugar, and rice. Meanwhile, back at the farm, five of the remaining seven kids stay home to look after things while they are gone. After all, they will only be gone about three hours, so we spent the time as kids do just having fun, singing, playing cards, and generally teasing each other to pass the time. Suddenly the sky is clouding over and the wind is blowing and gusting, and there are snow flurries whirling around, increasing in volume until it's a white mass of missiles bouncing off the windows. Immediately we think of our parents being caught in the blizzard. We have no way of knowing how they are. We are isolated with only the radio for news, and it keeps giving us static. After the afternoon turns into evening, we realize we must do the chores. My brothers are busy shoveling a path to the barn as the snow has already piled up a foot, and we hurriedly do our chores so we can go back to the warmth of the house, making sure on the way that we have enough coal and wood to keep the stoves going. Now evening is turning into night, and they still not home, and the storm has increased in its fury and is banking up over the windows, which are frosted up, and we have to steam and scrape an opening to see through. My brother has, has to go to the bathroom, which, of course, is outside along a path, and upon returning, he can't open the door. We try from our side. It's stuck. No amount of reaming and banging and pushing can move it. So he goes to the barn to find some heat from the cows, but keeps coming back. We realize we have to do something. We must. We just can't leave him out there and, until our parents come home, which is looking like it may not happen. We decide to undo the hinges of the door on the other side in order to remove the door, and it's working. It's off, and my brother is in, and we are replacing the door on the hinges, but now the door won't shut. The lock won't hold, so we nailed the door shut to keep cold out. Then we have to figure out how we are going to get our five-foot-nothing, 190-pound mother through a pantry window, the only window that can be opened in winter, and it's two feet by two feet and high up. Why didn't we think of that for my brother? Too late. We would have left the door alone. But now we are listening to the radio, and at least we have a great reception from, the, from California. We got KFBK, Sacramento. We, are, we listen to the squeaking door, Superman, the Lone Ranger, and Batman and Robin, all half-hour serials. We're even hearing gospel music from Texas. Then we start dropping off to sleep where we're sitting. The last thing I remember is my brother sitting on the wood box, nodding off and thinking, why doesn't, why doesn't he just go to bed? And then I'm hearing the jingling of harnesses and the snorting of horses, and I'm wide awake. Then there's a banging at the door, and my brother had to scurry getting the nails out of the door so, to let my dad in. They had come over the hill on our neighbor's horse, horses and wagon. The road was drifted over, but the highway had been cleared. They left the car on the highway. In the week that it takes to wait for the snowplow to clear our half-mile road to the highway, we have fun walking over drifts, sliding down the other side, digging out caves, under the hardened snow, pretending we were Eskimos or Inuits, as they are now called, living in an igloo. 
The best was the nights, the hoarfrost on the trees, a bluish tinge to the snow, and the northern lights dancing and buzzing and exhibiting the colors of the rainbow. It was magical. Then at the end of the week, after the snowplot had done its things, my dad brought the car home. Life goes back to normal, as normal as that can be in those cold winter days on the farm. Well, that just about wraps up our first 411 Powered by Age podcast. Thanks so much for listening. And thanks to all the podcast producers, all the other kind participants, and the guys at Podstream Studio who helped make this all happen.